Hey, I thought I'd um, kick off just with a prayer. Um, that's bound to work if my technology is playing nicely. Well, here it goes. Ete atua, te atafai kahatonu, which is God, your mercy never fails. As the season of Matariki returns once more, we thank you for the bounty of nature, for its tireless cycle of sowing, growing, and reaping. We remember the wisdom of generations who went before us. We stand on the shoulders of those who went before us. We're grateful for your provision, for food and shelter, for friends and laughter. And just as you held last year, you hold the year that is to come. God, your mercy never fails. Amen. Just kind of wanted to acknowledge Matariki. It, it's new to us, or new to me at least. And, uh, and so we haven't tried to focus on it, but... For me, um, there's a Māori whakatauki that says, Mō te taha ki te reo Māori he akonga noa iho tato, which basically means when it comes to Māori, we're all but learners. Um, and this year, I felt like a learner. There's just all the stuff I don't know. So um, I, I hope some people have wandered in and um, enjoyed the stuff. Anyone go into town? Check it out at night? Light's good? Yep. Most of us didn't. Okay. Right, but that's not what I'm going to talk about. Okay, the phone rings, and a complete stranger with a slightly odd accent says, you have a virus on your computer. Anyone had that happen? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I've, uh, I developed a tactic. I used to say to them, oh, it's great you speak English so well. With such good English skills, I'm sure you could get a different job. One that wouldn't have you ripping off the poor, and one that would have you sleep well at night. And I did, in fact, have someone... Oh, I was really pulling my punches, eh? Um, I did actually have someone say, um, could you get me a job? <laughs> and I had to say, well, I know you're not in New Zealand. <laughs> so, um, but I am reliably told that there's another tactic. Apparently, oops, sorry, can I tell you about Jesus? Shuts them down really quickly. <laughs> Um, phone surveys, I'm told, it works for insurance companies, and if you're sitting next to that really strong extrovert on the plane, can I tell you about Jesus? I am told, I have not tried this tactic myself, we'll sh I get to say, um, what do you do? I'm a minister, that often has the same effect. Um, <laughs> we'll shut down the conversation, which is understandable, but really sad. We want people to know about Jesus, about the good news of Jesus. We want people to know about gospel renewal. If I did a pop quiz, and I'm not going to embarrass you and ask you to, and said, who here is here because they love Jesus, there'd be a forest of hands. We so, and if I asked who feels bad when people talk about evangelism, I think there'd also be a forest of hands. Maybe a little less. Maybe a lot of folded arms, like folded arms. Um, which is crazy. So, what I want to do this morning is talk about two, two journeys, and one from the Bible and another one, and a little bit some 
So I'm talking about how we might be able to talk about Jesus without too much cringe. Um, I'm really hoping that my technology will play along with me. If it doesn't, I'll be looking at my phone a bit. Okay. So a year ago, with the help of the elders, um, I took a sabbatical. I've had a year to chew on it. They've asked me to report back a bit. And uh, um, so what I did on my winter sabbatical slash staycation by Colin Wood, of course, it didn't work out the way I had planned it. Um, I spent a good deal more at home than I had planned because uh, I started off by taking some time to rest and pray, which I'm going to reflect on in a bit. But I was also really interested in how churches are approaching both discipleship and evangelism, that combination, in the context of a country where most Western churches are slowly declining. That's sort of the overall picture of what seems to be happening. Um, so I'd arranged to meet up with a bunch of people working in churches where I thought, oh, okay, there's something interesting happening there. Um, I'd done a, a webinar series um, about discipleship um, and I'd arranged to meet some people. I met some people in Christchurch and then um, after the first month, Linda and I flew to Wellington where we met with some more people up there and, uh, and then COVID hit and we ran for home and I confess I did a bit of adult sulking. Adults do it too, you know. Um, and thought... And so, I mean, what I did on my winter sabbatical staycation, I, I could give it an F. Okay, it did not go towards plan. But that wouldn't be entirely fair because Paul had these missionary trips. What I did on my second missionary trip, signed by Paul. And they didn't go to plan either. Things came up which derailed them, which is not what you expect because you kind of expect that these guys, Paul particularly, very in contact with the Spirit of God, so, you know, you don't just make plans, you pray, and you say, oh, now we're going to do this. And so you'd think that he'd get it right all the time, but actually he heads out through Derby and Lystra and picks up Timothy and possibly Luke. We're not certain about that. Um, what happens is in the book of Acts, suddenly the language turns into we. So it could be that Luke's traveling with him. And he's made plans, but listen, it doesn't get COVID, but things don't go that way. Paul has made these plans. Now, I, I like this. This is Paul's missionary trips, and my theory is anything that looks like the London Underground, it just looks really good. So I had to show that, because I think that's pretty impressive. It's, he's on the blue line, this, this one here, but that doesn't really tell the story properly. Probably what's better is to have a, a rough look at this and say he, he's, um, he's starting off down here in Jerusalem, he's heading up, heading off around here. Where he really wants to go is to Asia, here we are, when next Paul travelled through Phrygia, I should have practised that one, and Galatia. Because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia. They wanted to go to Asia, which is up around here. And they actually wanted to go to Bithynia after that. So he said, then coming to the orders of Mysia, which is up over here. They headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went through Messia to the seaport of Troas, which is up over here. So the thing to notice is he set up on this journey, this great super spiritual person, and the Holy Spirit has stopped him from going places. I wonder if he sulked. Because that wouldn't have been what was on his to-do list. That wasn't how things were supposed to go. 
He's gathered these people, off he goes. And um, if you keep reading, well, that night, when they're in Troas, Paul has a vision, and he sees a man from Macedonia. So that's over here. I'm getting exercise this morning. He sees in this dream a man pleading, saying, come, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so they decided to leave for Macedonia straight away and concluded that that's where God was calling them. They'd set off on a journey thinking they were going to go here, here, and here. They were prevented from going to for places, and we're told that this is God's spirit stopping them from going there. And then they have this dream saying, come here. So Paul, superstar, has not got it right from the word go. He either didn't know what to do, what to do or he set off to do something and discovered, no, that's God saying, no, that's not what I want. Which is kind of good news for anyone who might be here who sometimes has great plans, is pretty much convinced they've got it from God for, and they go forward and it doesn't work out that way. You're not alone. You're in very, very good company. It might be interesting to apply that to church in the West, where we've often thought we know all the answers and maybe that's not quite how it's worked. Okay, but they get to a place in Philippi, which is kind of the capital city of Macedonia. So that's the Christchurch of Canterbury, um, or maybe of Te Punamu of the South Island. And they stay a few days. Now, you can't just walk into a new town and start talking about a new religion. That's a really good way to get yourself offed. You can't just do that. There's, they don't have that kind of Christchurch Square thing. So Paul's practice is he looks for a safe place. And the safest place will be, because he's Jewish in background, a Jewish place. So he's going to look around for a synagogue, but we think there's probably no synagogue in, um, in, this is in Philippi. Yep, I think there's probably no synagogue there. But what he does is he finds um, there's a bunch of Jews or Jewish sympathizers who meet at the side of the river. So this would be like coming into Christchurch and then heading along the side of the River Avon, discovering that there's a group that meets on some section of the Avon. Okay? And there's an opportunity for him to talk, and one, when he's talking, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to God's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to their home. There's that the us thing. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Some things to notice. When Luke writes about her, he says she was a worshipper of God. So she's interested in God already. Paul didn't convert her per se. In fact, Paul didn't convert her because Luke says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And then she persuades them to stay at her place, which is a bit unusual. Um, there was very strongly gender-bound society. So men staying at a woman's house, meh, there's sort of, sort of minor alarm bells in this mix. So to summarise, Paul and his team ended up in an unexpected place and meet someone who's receptive to who they are and what they have to stay, and they stay with her. Okay. Now, instead, I'm talking about two trips. Back to our world. So there are a number of churches who are very taken with a system called 3DM. Has anyone heard of that? Yep, some have. Yep. And um, I understand that in the past, Chris Panaya spoke about this. So there are some here who if things sound familiar. That's okay. 
Um, I did actually chase up with Chris about it and find out what his take was. These, um, one of the, the thoughts in this way of thinking is to pay attention to what they call the person of peace. And what they do is they look at the story of when Jesus sent out his disciples and the directions that he gave them. And they particularly focus. He sends out 72. He appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two. And he told them the harvest was plentiful and the workers were few. Asked God to send out the harvest and told them he would send them out like lambs among wolves. So don't take a purse. Don't take stuff with you. Don't greet people on the road. Don't get sidetracked. And then, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And he goes on to say, and actually, if they don't welcome you, we'll move on. And then there's this funny phrase about shaking the dust off your feet, which uh, um, in a dusty environment is. So they think that the, these people are people of peace. A person of peace might be Lydia, someone who God was already calling towards her. And Paul gets involved and there's obviously not a personality clash here between her and Paul. She kind of likes what's being said and there's instant response. They think a person of peace is someone God has already made receptive. Someone who God is calling. And then you get a role in that. Paul has a role in this. They think that there are people like this around. And so some of these churches in Christchurch and in Wellington are trying to explore this. And one of their questions is, well, how do you end up, how do you spot someone like that? Like, where in your life might there be someone who God is calling? Well, their assumption is God is working inside and outside the church. So you didn't take Jesus to the people. Jesus is already working. Um, it's certainly been my observation that the people that I see who are coming to Jesus, I often have a sense of, I just need to not stuff this up. You know, they're heading towards Jesus, and if I don't throw myself in front of them and trip them up, they're going to meet Jesus. And that does, I have seen that happen. So they have some assumptions about a person of peace. They think the first thing is, if you've got a role, they'll probably like you. It's not that likely that it'll be someone that you majorly clash with. Now, that makes a certain amount of sense to me. When I was in Southland, I remember going to a talk at Kew Hospital. The head psychiatrist explained he... Um, said, he gave us some of the different methodologies they use to deal with um, patients, and then he said, but you know, the method we use um, accounts for no more than 30%. And he said, so you're all wondering what the rest of it is, and he said, it's um, the bond made between the carer and the carey. It's the relationship. And he said, practically, what that meant for him as chief psychologist of Q is he said, if someone comes to my office to see me professionally, and they don't like me, or I really don't like them, he said, I refer them instantly, because he said, I've got no chance of helping them. Which is a really interesting take, and significant for us, I think. There are people you like. There are people who like you. Pay attention. That may mean you have a role. And if they really don't like you, maybe someone else has a role. These guys suggest that we should pray every day, Lord, bring into my path a person of peace. 
and give me the grace to speak your words to this person. And their measure is to say, they're likely to receive. Well, I can't tell you it's definitely like that. But it would be pretty nice if it was. Because the task of evangelism would be different. There's less, I have to do this. There's less, there's much more a sense of my role matters. They think the guidelines are you would spot people like this because they welcome you, they listen to you, and they say often they want to serve or support you in some way. What I really like about this is it recognises that relationships take time and that we do like some people and not like others. That's how people are. What I also really like this, about this is it would let you look at the people who are around you. Here, at work, wherever you are, and just ask, who's in this situation? Are there people who I think, oh, I think you're moving towards God. And I think, we like each other. I could be helpful. That doesn't seem like a harsh load, does it? It seems like it's possible, achievable. Of course, uh, you'll have noticed I had this, uh, the picture of the houses across the road. Last week, one of the things we talked about is one of our difficulties as followers of Jesus is that we live in a society with really high fences. So when are you alongside people? And I commented that if somebody in one of these houses became Christians, no one would necessarily notice because we don't look into their houses. Um, Kevin and Angela, sit down with Kevin and Angela, where are you, Angela? And ask them about their time with hitchhikers. Or ask AJ about university students because there's a stream of them and you can draw alongside those. But a lot of our relationships are alongside people who we're going to be alongside for a long time, we would hope. So more of a marathon than a sprint. Okay. The story continues, back to the Paul script, much more important than mine. So immediately after meeting Lydia, staying at their place, so Paul stays a while because he's forming relationships and his pattern wasn't a drive-by pattern. In his trips, he, someone is responsive, he hangs around, he wants them to learn. There's a lot to learn about following Jesus. Well, they're heading off to a place of prayer and it turns out that there's this female slave who has a spirit that predicts the future and she just keeps following them around and yelling out, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Which you would think, great message, right? But obviously it gets on their wick because she keeps this up for many days and Paul gets so annoyed that he um, turns around and in the name of Jesus I command you to come out of her and the spirit leaves. Now, she's in a, quite a different position to Lydia. She's a slave. And in the story, the, I think the entertaining bit of this is that, um, and this gets played out again and again, what happens next is that her owners, who've been using her as a source of income, get quite knocked. If you really want to get um, resistance, challenge the economic system. They have just challenged the economic system. And so the next thing that happens is they are dragged off to jail. Paul and Silas are put into jail. And uh, the next one's one of those Sunday school stories. They're in jail. They're singing hymns to God. By the way, um, the songs that we sing in church should be songs we could sing in prison. 
I reckon it's one of the guidelines. I thought about it ever since I heard an interview with someone who'd been in solitary confinement for a long time. And he, when he was asked what got him through, he said, I sang. And it made me think, I want to sing songs I could sing in prison. Not that I hope to go there, okay? <laughs> so they're praying, singing songs and him and, uh, hymns to God, and other listeners, uh, prisoners are listening to them, and then there's an earthquake. And the doors open, and the jailer thinks, oh my goodness, they're going to escape, I'm going to get killed. And, um, and then when he sees Paul and Silas, he rushes in and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Which lots of sermons are preached about because we love that language. What's really interesting, how did he get to that language? Well, quite possibly he'd heard the woman who was saying, these people can tell you how to be saved. And he too gets, he and his family have faith in Jesus, are baptised, and eventually there's a bit of politics in this. Paul and Silas are released. They get offered to be released, but they say, no, 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 no. Because Paul's also aware of what does Christianity look like. He says, you can't just release me. You actually have to publicly show that we didn't do anything wrong. He's very conscious about it. Quite a good political move, and he gets let go. So, in this story, and they go back to Lydia's house. So, I think we probably could call Lydia a person of peace. Someone who was interested in the stuff of God. Someone that Paul could connect with. I think you could probably call the jailer a person of peace. Someone whose heart was calling out for this. You'll notice I'm not telling you all of the things that these people believe. I found myself attracted to some aspects of this. And actually I found some other aspects very repellent, very highly programised. Um, and I'm uncomfortable with that, my experience of people as they are people. What I like about this is you could treat someone as a, as a person. Your personality, who you are, matters. No one else can say or do the things that you do the way that you do. And in my following of Jesus, that seems to matter. You don't cease to be you as you follow Jesus. You become more you, a better you in the light of Christ. I visited a few communities. A number of them were playing with this 3D and stuff and I wanted to prick out the person of peace because I think it's a question for us. It asks a couple of questions. One, it asks, well, what, who are the people who are nearby me? It asks you to assess, what are they like? Do they like me? Do they clash with me? It asks you to think, are they at all interested in God? Is there any movement in their life? And might I have, I have a role in that? I think those are great questions. It might ask simply, are you alongside people who don't know Jesus? Because if you find yourself in a life where that's not happening, uh, that does tend to happen to ministers a fair bit. We're terrible at this. Then you might want to take some moves to put yourself somewhere where you could be. I like this lastly because it has a, um, a strongly relational aspect. So there's a whole bunch of churches. Now, I mentioned this, um, the Anglican Diocese of Wellington, um, led by Bishop Justin Duckworth, is exploring this. 
For me, that gives it weight. Southwest Baptist has been exploring this. Again, that gives it weight. Uh, I know that North City Church is exploring this. They have been for a while. Okay. There's something else that those three communities are doing, uh, faith communities, and they are exploring intentional presence-based communities, and they have been for a while. And I wonder about that because, I'm not sure if I put this on the next slide because my technology is not playing nicely. Um, I wonder about that because I wonder about the fences, that sense of separation, and if some of the growth in intentional communities, in uh, churches like Oxford Terrace Baptist, and actually I understand all saints now have flats for young adults where they subsidise the rent, <laughs> Um, so, but expect them to be involved in the life of the church. They're doing it to try and grow a sense of local community because they're recognising there's something in that that is inherently attractive. And I'm not really talking about that today. I'm just highlighting the person of peace. Which brings me to that I wanted to pray for us and then have a benediction. And I'd, as, I, as I do, I'd like you to be thinking about the people around you in your life. So they could be family, close family or family that's further apart. They could be people that you work alongside, people who are at the break room. They could be people who are interested in the same things, people who love Lego or mountain bike riding or engines or I don't know what your interests are. I'm inviting you to consider who's around me. I'd like to pray. E te atua, te atafai kaha tonu. God, your mercy never fails. Your mercy stretches beyond our lives to the lives of others. Your spirit works outside our reach. You are always calling people to you. We'd like to be a part of that. Bring to our minds the people we hang with. Bring to our minds the people we don't yet hang with, but sense that you might have a role for, we might have a role for. Free us from our expectations of ourselves, which have become shackles. Work in us the patient coming of your kingdom. Weave our lives together, together with others in love and honesty. May your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Amen. And I figured that rather than sing a song and have you forget, I'd like you to have that, who is a person of peace? What might they look like floating around? So you could talk with someone about it. Uh, this is a, uh, uh, a simple benediction. Would you read this with me? And after this, there's tea and coffee. There's coffee pods out in the um, thing for those who um, like caffeine and have a machine that can dispense it accordingly. Um, don't feel that you rush off the weaving of people together as part of what church is about. We gather with others 
to make connections so that one another may grow, help each other grow in Christ. Would you say this with me? Go with the strength you have. Go simply, lightly, gently, in search of love, and the Spirit go with you. Amen. Thanks.